So as I've gotten older over the last years, um, I say that as like I'm getting old. Sometimes I feel like it, but I know I'm not. Uh, one thing I've actually really grown to appreciate more and more is really good storytelling. You know, whether it be in books or movies or TV shows or even these games, a lot of video games have awesome storylines. Um, it's pretty easy for me to get sucked into really good ones. I know I'm not unique in that, but it is something that I've just grown to appreciate. And so like when I think about, though, for me, the stories that I really enjoy the most, they usually have some kind of like chosen one character in them. Like the one character that stands out above all the rest, the really powerful one. He's, you know, the one who's supposed to fulfill some mystic prophecy and save the world, or he's the one who's called in to come and help when everybody else is in trouble, and he's always the one to save the day, whether they like it or not. You know, or there's that kid who comes up out of nowhere and comes out of nothing to conquer the enemy that's always been there. I mean, they usually find love in the process, too. That's always a bonus. Um, but whatever the storyline happens to be, I just, I, I love specifically following the story of that specific, like, chosen one character. Because I like to think about, I tend to ponder, like, what is their thought process? What goes on in their minds? Like, how do they strategize? What do they, who do they look up to? How do they rally people behind them? What character flaws do they have to live with? Or what do they have to work through and overcome in their life to be who they were supposed to be in the story? And sometimes they actually don't make the right decisions. Um, or they fall from their place of prominence. And sometimes the one who everyone was supposed to be able to, count, to be counted on is the one who lets everybody down. You know, I think about Star Wars in Episode 3. Obi-Wan faced Anakin Skywalker after he turned, right? He says, you were the one who was supposed to destroy the Sith. You're, you're supposed to bring balance to the Force and not join them. Um, it happens a lot in, in storytelling, and it's a good plot twist, right? But, um, and the reason I share all that is because Israel, the nation of Israel, is the, was supposed to be the chosen one character in God's story in the Old Testament. They were the one who were supposed, ones who were supposed to be at the center of all the world, especially in the world of religion and spiritual stuff. And that's, they are God's chosen people. They were, like, they were supposed to show the nations God's goodness and his glory, they were also supposed to offer the nations an opportunity to come and repent of their sins and offer them an opportunity to turn and worship the God of the universe for themselves. However, that's not what they always did. And their sin, in, their, in this point in history where Amos was writing, their sin and their rebellion against God had reached a point that he would no longer tolerate. He was absolutely disgusted of what they were doing. So God sent a series of prophets to go speak in different regions in throughout, throughout Israel. And so today we're looking at Amos. And so Amos was actually in, uh, from the tribe of Judah. He was from the southern kingdom of Israel. But God sent him to the north with a message of condemnation and warning against the Israelites concerning their behavior. And so we're going to look at one part of his warning this morning. It's just a few verses in Amos chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles um, or if you have your phone, it's going to be Amos chapter 5 verses 21 through 24. Otherwise, the words will be on the screen behind me. And it says this, I hate, these are the words of God, I hate and I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river in righteousness like a never-failing stream. When I read the, that passage for the first time, I was like, this is an incredibly stern and serious warning from God. I mean, I was, just, I was shocked at the language that he uses. How could he hate the worship of his chosen people? 
And how had God's people, how did Israel, how could they have fallen so far away from what God had created and set them up to be as a society and as a people? You know, where did, that, where did they all go wrong? How did they get in this spot for God to just completely disregard their, their, their system of worship and sacrifices? So if you look back in a few, a few books in 1 Kings chapter 12, I'm not going to read it, but there is this story of how Israel is divided into two separate kingdoms. And it happened right at the death of King Solomon. Um, and, it, and, and so when that happened, there was some division of who was going to take over and what was going to happen next. And I would encourage you to go back and read that story this week as, we get, as we're going through all the prophets to help you keep in mind what's going on in Israel's history. And so this division was actually foretold by God of this kingdom splitting because Solomon had rebelled against God in, in the last of his days. He had over 700 wives and he, caused, and he caused a lot of oppression to the people of Israel. And so, so therefore, God, God, as part of God's punishment was that he's going to divide the kingdoms. And so since that point, a few generations back, Israel was in this back-and-forth pendulum of you know, going forward in different periods of faithful kings who brought God's promises and, and turned God, God's people back to him, and not faithful kings who caused the people to turn away, worship idols, sexual immorality, economic oppression, all those different kinds of things. And so it kept going on and on and on like this for generation after generation. Rebelling, turning back, rebelling, turning back, rebelling, turning back. And so during the lifetime of Amos, we were in this period where Israel had turned back. Things had been good, and it was a time of prosperity, but things were actually not as good as Israel thought they were. We were in the period of right now, we're swinging back towards rebellion again. And so they were under the rule of Jer- a man called Jeroboam II who had restored the kingdom of Israel and brought peace between them, Judah, and all the surrounding nations. And so politically, that was a good thing for Israel. That's why things were going prospering for them so well. Money was flowing. Things were going, looking really good. But spiritually, however, Israel was continued to be an incredibly dark place. And God charged Amos with delivering Israel this warning um, to them of their hypocritical behavior. And so Amos actually started out in chapter 1 at the beginning by actually delivering warnings to all of Israel's neighbors to help Israel see what, was going, what they were doing. And so um, if you look at chapter 1, there, God calls out Damascus, the Philistines, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and Judah. All of these different uh, groups of people received warnings from God from Amos in chapter 1. You know, Damascus was called out for idol worship. The Philistines and Tyre were, are called out for capturing and selling slaves. Edom for relentlessly slaughtering other nations. Ammon was called out for killing unborn children. Moab was, overzealous, was called out for overzealous vengeance on others. And Judah was being led astray again by false gods. And so while God was calling these, things, these nations out to warn them, what he was actually doing, though, is if you look at the, the order of the nations in which they were called out, and where they were located on a map, God was actually drawing a target around Israel. And the, farther he, the, more, the more he called out, the, the narrower that target became until Israel was right at the center of that target. And so the atrocities mentioned below, above, as, as, as Amos was warning the people, they would have absolutely been accepted by the Israelites as worthy of receiving God's judgment. They would have been, oh, absolutely, our neighbors do des- deserve to be destroyed. Those heathens do not worship God. But what God was actually doing was he was using the other nation's shortcomings 
to show just how far Israel had fallen. And in chapter 2, God finally releases his full accusations on Israel. This is what was going on in Israel in those days and why his warning in chapter 5 is so harsh. Uh, Amos 2 verse 6 says this. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, or even four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as, dust, as, as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same woman and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. And so remember when Jesus in the New Testament said to get the log out of your own eye before worrying about the speck in someone else's? This is another one of those moments in Scripture. God is saying to the Israelites, Oh yeah, you think what your neighbors are doing is really bad? Have you looked in the mirror lately? Have you seen yourselves and what you're doing? You're selling and you're trading people into debt slavery because the greed is running so rampant in your society. The rich are continually siphoning off money from the poor and taking advantage of them. They served no justice to the oppressed in their communities. They celebrated sexual immorality and they worshiped false gods and slept with prostitutes in their temples. And on top of it, they worshiped these false gods using the things and the, and the wine and the items that the, the rich had extorted off the poor in the first place, sinning twice with the same items. And God was absolutely disgusted and hated it. And so they, the, as Israel, on one hand, claimed to be the chosen nation of God and wanted to live out that, that identity, you know, which they were the chosen people of God, but they were living no different than the nations around them. They, lived, they looked no different from any other people group around them. And the reality is, so God placed Israel in the middle of the ancient world so that everyone wouldn't have to actually pass through there um, on their trade and commerce runs. Israel was meant to be the hub of the ancient world under God's design. They were supposed, as I said, they were supposed to show the nation how God intends people to live and offer the opportunity to worship him. They were to be an example of morality and justice and serving the Lord. Israel was, to, Israel was the nation to bring, quote, balance to the force, but they lived just like everybody else did. They left people in darkness. They were meant to be the closest to God, and they were meant to bring the nations close to God as well. And God was not going to stand for this anymore. And they, that is why he has such harsh disdain towards, towards them in chapter 5. God hated Israel's worship, because it was totally disconnected from how they treated people when they went home. They were just, they were just performing ritualistic worship not pursuing the, and not pursuing the Lord with their hearts or following his standards of justice and righteousness. You know, if you were to put that in kind of like terms for today, they were showing up to church on Sunday so they could feel better about their partying that they did last night on Saturday night. They showed up on church, to church on Sunday and they performed the sacrifices just so that they wouldn't feel guilty about the things that they did on Monday. That's not a real relationship with God. Having a real relationship with God will produce something different inside of people than that. Because seeking God is synonymous with actually for seeking and doing good in the world. Why is that? Because God is perfectly good himself. So when we seek him, we would naturally become more like him. And I wish I had more time to unpack that mystery and that balance, but um, basically in summary of it all, he's, he's himself perfectly just, 
God is perfectly righteous, and he's perfectly holy. So as we pursue him, those are the traits and the qualities that we would seek to emanate as people in our world. And I know that not, we're not perfect at that, but at the, at the end of the day, God is the final standard of holiness. So when we seek him, we actually seek what is good, and the patterns of our life ought to naturally follow what we seek. And because of that, worship of God and justice are actually two sides of the same coin. They were never meant to be separated things, as we've, as we've so often seen throughout church history. You see groups of people who are really good at worshiping God, but then don't do anything in their community. On the other side of it, you see a lot of, you see, I've seen a lot of groups of people where they're really, really good at getting out in the community and doing things and making a difference, but they do it and they don't worship God as they do it. Those things were never meant to be separated. Because how can you say you love God if you don't love your neighbor? So how do we love our neighbor? God says in verse 24, he wants us to let justice roll on like a river, and he wants righteousness like a never-failing stream. And so before I actually answer the how we do justice and how we love our neighbor, that's actually, I want to make sure, though, that we understand what we're talking about. What is justice? What is righteousness? And what does God say these words mean? Because as you know, the topic of justice specifically is a very, very sensitive vein in our culture today. Almost every single headline you see on social media these days has some kind of tie to social justice and morality and right and wrong and, and, doing, and wanting to right the wrongs and all that kind of stuff. And It's on every single person's bio. And it just seems like, though, everyone has their own different flavor of what justice is. And it always gets so complex so fast, a lot of us feel really paralyzed to even know what we can do about stuff. And so it's really important then, let's look at what, how the scriptures define what justice is. So the Hebrew word that's used for justice in verse, verse 24 is called mishpat, and it, which simply means, it means giving people their due, whether it's punishment, protection, or care. And so actually, I think that's a pretty agreeable um, definition of what justice would be um, practically. And I think for me, like it, it, did, it does generally fall in line with how most of us would define what justice is, like giving people what they deserve, uh, to put it simply. But where we often disagree, though, especially in our culture, is, well, how much do they deserve or what exactly do they deserve in a different, different scenario? And the unfortunate reality is we, we base that argument, and that, large, that argument has largely become so it's become politicized and polarized, where there's only two options, one way over here and one way over there. And at the end of the day, when you look at the justice goals of any sides of our culture today, I think really what you see is each one only pursues justice or the justice cause that they believe is the most convenient to what they, what they claim to believe and that will provide them with the most gains and the most power financially. Which is probably not unlike the Israelites in, in Amos' day of only choosing to follow the, the causes that they feel would further their own gain. So as Christians then, we don't want to emanate what the world would call of justice because it doesn't actually solve any problems. And it only serves our own, our own gain. So as Christians, what does pursuing justice in a way that pleases God look like? That's where the righteousness part of this comes in. So as Christians, we should pursue, right, uh, pursue justice in a way that creates righteousness in the world and in our own lives and in the lives of our friends and family. So the Hebrew word that is used for righteousness is, is sadik, which means to live rightly before God 
or to live justly. And not only just obey God's commands, but also to bring your life in alignment with peace and justice. So as Christians, we need to be careful how we choose to pursue justice and what causes we support. Because not every cause supports God's righteousness and his plans for the world. You know, and I'm not going to get any more political and start calling out what items of our day I think are biblical or not, because that's not really what we're here for. And every issue anyways is, is facing a culture is so complex, both at the macro and micro levels, we could never possibly hope to cover something in the time we have. And so, and as much as many people would like to believe, trying to simply uh, dumb everything down to a left or a right solution isn't helpful, and it never really gets to the true root of the problems that we're facing as a culture today. And so as Christians, we, specifically, we need to let the scriptures inform us on what God really cares about. And he cares deeply about justice. Make no mistake, he cares about justice. Because injustice profanes his holy name, as it says in chapter 2, verse 7 in Amos. Injustice destroys people who are created in the image of God. Injustice allows culture and diversity of God's creation to be squashed out, when it should be celebrated and uplifted. Injustice creates unbearable economic hardship that leads to despair and death for thousands and thousands of people across the world every single day. Injustice holds people back from the opportunity to hear about and respond to the gospel. And God does care deeply about the things that are going on in our world. He wants to see justice for people. God actually promised Abraham in Genesis 12 that the nation of Israel was meant to be a blessing to all of the nations. And now that promise is also for us, the church. We are meant to be a blessing to the nations and pointing people back to Jesus Christ. So our pursuit of justice should always uphold the righteousness of God and his character, whatever we decide to pursue in a justice cause. So church, it is our responsibility to fight for justice in this community here in Duluth. So how do we do that? Um, it's more than just simply picking a cause and posting about it on social media. And it's definitely not enough to just vote for someone and hope they accomplish justice for us. We should allow our beliefs to inform who we vote for and, and what we post about and what we talk about. Those things are important, but it's not enough to do just that. And so I've got three different ways this morning that I think the Bible shows us how we can help shine the light of Jesus, as it says in Matthew 13, that I want to go through. And so that I think will be helpful as we, to think about as we go forward with our lives. And so the first is be alert to what God is doing around you every day. Because God is doing more than you know every single day in your life. There's no way you can know everything he's doing, but we can be alert to the opportunities that God puts in front of you to be the light of the world in the people that you, in the people that you live with. And the danger that we face, though, in, in, in doing this is that we love to stay really busy. Like, we all have places to be. There's people to see. Students have homework to do. There's tests to study for. There's work functions to attend to. There's kids to get off to sports practices and plays. The list goes on and on and on. And here's the reality. I think we, we are busy, but we, did not, we do not have as much on our plates as Jesus did. Um, think about the story of Zacchaeus in Luke's gospel um, when it comes to being alert and aware of what's going on. In verse 1 in that story, it says that Jesus was actually just passing through Jericho. Like, it was not a stop he was intending to make. But Jesus had his radar on because he's Jesus. um, And he was able to pinpoint somebody who was searching for him, 
hiding in a tree potentially upwards of 75 feet tall. And he saw him, and he called out to him, and he brought the gospel to, to Zacchaeus that day. And there are, there are people, and just like that, there are people all around us every single day that are searching for Jesus, that are struggling with injustice. And even if they don't realize it right now, they are looking for hope. They are looking for healing in, the, in, in Jesus. And we don't have to search in trees to find people. So be alert to who God has placed in front of you and pay attention to the, to the, the causes that God exposes you to. Um, seek out the lost like Jesus does and be intentional about reaching out to your neighbors. Keep an eye open for the opportunities that you have every single day to do something about the tangible injustices of the people in your circles every single day. And as we do that, the second thing that goes along with that is show others that you care about them as you're, as you're trying to be alert of what's going on. And it seems simple, but it is hard to seek out the lost and be aware of what God is doing if your heart doesn't care about other people. You won't see the injustice in someone's life if you don't know them. And so we have to take time to get to know the people that God places around us. And we also must learn to love all of humanity, no matter who they are, as beloved people created in the image of God. Not just, not just items to be thrown aside and ignored. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, Paul says, Though I am free, I belong to no one. I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. And that's the mindset that I want to encourage us to have, is belong to everybody when, when, when the time comes. And I think about, for me, um, a couple years ago, um, I was wrestling whether or not, back and forth, whether or not I, how deeply I wanted to get involved with a local car club here in town. Um, for those of you that don't know me, I am a car guy through and through. It's what I love. It's I live and breathe it when I'm at home. And so as I was thinking about getting involved with this community, though, one of the things that I was really thinking about and wrestling with is like, ah, oh, man, how deep do I like these people? There's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of drugs uh, problems, alcohol problems in a lot of their lives, a lot of just things that I don't find to be worthy of celebrating. Like, how, what do I do? How do I, I don't want to be seen as somebody that hangs out with people like that. And so I really wrestled for the first summer that I was in and out with this club of like, I don't really know if I want to invest and be seen as somebody like that. But then I, that, that, winter, that next winter, I read a book, and it's called Saturate by Jeff Vanderstelt. And one of the things that I distinctly remember from that book and what he said was he spends probably 75% of his time with non-Christians. And when I read that, it kind of just clicked on me of like, God has called, but God has placed me in this city for a reason. He's pla- and he's placed the interests and the hobbies that I have in my life for a reason. And so I can use those things to be an influence for God. So why would I not invest in this community? Why would I not make friends with these people? Because if I don't, how are they going to hear about Jesus? If they don't, how are they going to know that somebody out there cares about them? Um, who else is going to do it but me? That's why God has placed me here. And so when I realized that, the next year I decided that I was going to fully dive in as best as I could um, to, make, to make new friends, to uh, influence people that I didn't normally get, wouldn't have normally wanted to spend time with, and to get to know people outside of my normal Christian bubble. And I tell you what, I've learned a lot from men, and they've learned a lot from me, and it's been in a wonderful season and a wonderful few years of making a lot of friends and seeing some people, having opportunities to invite people to church, invite them to city group, share with them about the love of Jesus, talk with them and engage with them in ways that um, alter their worldview, and even have opportunities to help them and to serve them, and to be the light and hands and feet of Jesus in that community every single day. 
And so as I share that story, I don't share it because I feel like I've got it all figured out. I know I have a lot to learn, and I don't represent Christ the way that I would like to every single time I hang out with those people. But I just want to encourage you with that story. Think about who is in your sphere of influence. Think about what things do you, are you already doing every day? What things do you already love to do that you can use to reach out and, and, and care about others? What small steps can you take with the resources and, th- and the time that you do have to make an impact on somebody's life who doesn't know Christ? How can you grow in compassion for the poor and the broken of Duluth and Superior and, the, and, and of the world? How can you help somebody in your life take real steps forward towards, um, or real steps forward in their life? And as we do that, we do that, um, we're not going to do it perfectly, but um, the third thing that I have is as we do those things, remember how, always remember how far Jesus went for you as we, as we look to do that. Because the gospel is the reason that we are even capable in the first place of being aware of what God is doing and how we're able to care for the lost in that way. And that's where Jesus comes into this story. Jesus suffered the greatest injustice in human history. He was tempted 40 days in the wilderness. He endured persecution and opposition from others. He spent his entire life perfectly abiding by and perfectly fulfilling God's law and living up to the standards that God put in place. And his reward for that was that he was whipped and beaten. He had a crown of thorns driven deep into his head. He was nailed to a cross and he suffered there and he died there. And he did all of that willingly so that your sins and that my sins could be, could be forgiven. Jesus went to hell and back so that our relationship with him could be restored. Because it, all of us are guilty of committing, committing injustice. All of us have taken advantage of others and pushed people aside for our own game. We've all slandered our neighbor and we've all supported causes that God hates. All of us, just like Israel, have profaned the holy name of God in our lives. Nobody is beyond that. You don't, you don't deserve forgiveness for that from God. And you didn't earn anything. And you, at some point in your life, most of us, we didn't even want the gospel. But that, at the end of the day, that's the beauty of it, right? Jesus came to pay the price for what we have done, even though we don't deserve that. And that's the ultimate form of, of love. Remember when I said that justice is giving people their due? Our payment for sin is death. That is the justice that we deserve, is death and separation from God for the sins we've committed. But because, Je- because God and Jesus love us, Jesus took that death that we deserve upon himself, and because he was uniquely God and unique, uniquely man, he died and he rose again in victory over that. So whoever believes in him will not perish, but they will have eternal life. And that's the greatest news in human history, that the greatest injustice that has ever occurred serves to allow us to be restored to God um, in, for, all, for the rest of eternity. And so for us, as we go forward, we, some of us might need to receive that message from Jesus first this morning, because we don't earn our way to heaven by simply pursuing justice and pursuing righteousness. Honor of our own accord. That's not going to earn you a way back to God. Um, and, that, and at the end of the day, that creates a disgusting hypocrisy that Israel fell blame to, and we see so much of it in our culture today. We cannot create our own way back to Jesus. So when we choose to believe that Jesus is who we claim to be, and when we confess our sins to him and receive his forgiveness, we begin a new life. We begin to see the world in a new way. 
a life that is now free in the power of the Holy Spirit to get involved with Jesus' kingdom work of bringing blessing and peace to all the nations and to all the communities and to all the neighborhoods. Because Jesus is aware of everybody here this morning. He sees you. He knows you better than you know yourself. And more than that, Jesus actually cares about you. And he wants you to experience life the way that he intended it for it to be. And he wants everybody, and he wants others to experience life how he intended it to be. He knows the injustices you faced. He knows all the love, he know, his love went all the way to the cross for you. And so everybody who knows Jesus now has the right and the responsibility to shine his light to the world. And so if you want to be a part of that story, and if you want to be, if you want your life to make an eternal impact, if you want to be somebody who is a positive force for, um, in our community for justice and worshiping God, um, then you have to follow Jesus. And if for, the, if for some of you that might be the first time this morning that you have to make that decision to let Jesus define your life, make that decision this, this morning and follow him, just choose to follow him this morning for the first time. Because Jesus has already done the most difficult thing of all. He has defeated death. He's defeated injustice. He's defeated sin. So if we give our hearts to him, we can shine brighter for his glory than anyone has ever seen in this city before. Because church, we are the light of the world. And when we accept that, and when we take that responsibility for ourselves, we can begin to make an impact on the world and on our city that will last in eternity. It is something we can do. It's not just a pie-in-the-sky dream. We can make a difference, church. And that includes sharing the good news of gospel, of the gospel and worshiping God, as well as standing up for those who don't have a voice. That is part of our worship. God cares about our worship, and he cares about how we pursue justice. Our neighborhoods and our campuses and our cities and our workplaces are waiting on you, and they are waiting on me. Our government isn't going to do it for us. An elected official isn't going to do it for us. A nonprofit, though they may try, they're not going to do it for us. Our city's potential awakening to the light of the gospel is our responsibility this morning. And our city's potential transformation to a healthy place where justice is served and where all people can flourish is our responsibility, responsibility to fight for. No other group of people is, is, going, is going to be able to accomplish that. And we might not see the full results of that. There's going to always be sin and there will always be brokenness. But we can fight for it, and we can all make a difference in our city every single day. You don't have to have a lot to make a big difference. So don't let your light hide under a basket out of fears and insecurities. If you believe the gospel and have allowed the blood of Jesus to cover your sins, you have everything that you need in this world to complete the assignment that God has given you. So let's, let's commit this morning to worship God with everything that we have and fight for justice and righteousness in our communities every single day that we, that we have breath in our lungs.